Now, look, a little bit of a backstory. So, yeah, I've done 82 episodes with the Rental Journal podcast, and I reckon maybe 15 people have mentioned to me, you need to get Greg Parfit on the podcast. And it almost became a bit of an annoyance because every time I'll do someone, they'll be like, oh, by the way, you know you should do Greg. And then I was like, how do I get Greg Parfit on this podcast? Because people keep on bringing it up and up. So when we finally got connected, I was pretty excited that I'm getting this mystical Greg Parfit <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah, welcome and thank you for doing the first in-person Rental Journal podcast. No, it's a, it's a pleasure, I hope. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure... How many to draw the, the the short straw on the first video one, but uh, let's see how we go. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. So just as an introduction, uh, Greg Parfit is the CEO for Orange Hire, based out of Sydney, Australia. Um, and just to kick things off, do you want to talk to me first around where you grew up? How did you when you first moved to Australia? Just your your childhood. Sure. Well, I grew up in South Africa. Um, went through school there. Did uni. Um, went to University of Cape Town. Studied economics and then left and did some traveling in Europe. At the time, I was pretty keen on rugby and surfing, and I really surfed with some Aussies in South Africa. Went to the UK, ended up playing rugby league with, with mostly Aussies and a couple of Kiwis. Kind of liked the culture, and then really just decided to come out to Australia. And uh, at the time, I was overseas. My sister met an Aussie as well, and she ended up coming back here with him. So that was kind of almost the core of our family here already. So then just uh, really set up roots, and uh, I guess the rest is history. How old were you when you first moved? Um, well, I, I left there in 84. I got you in 86. I would have been 22-odd years old. Yeah. Was yeah. it nerve-wracking moving a whole new country? No, I mean, in those days, you know, you're young, you have a surfboard and a backpack <laughs> and, uh, and a pair of rugby boots, and, uh, and that's, it's pretty easy. Wow. So, so surfing's obviously a big thing in Australia as well. Was that part of the interest to bring you over? No, definitely. I mean, the, the, the lifestyle in, in general, um, you know, was an easy thing to get into. And I started in Cronulla. It was pretty easy to fit into that environment with those guys. And uh, yeah. Wow. So then what eventually got you into the equipment rental industry? So um, I've been in, in, in sort of some personal finance game and then in concrete um, yeah, with Pioneer Concrete. And then I was playing rugby with the, the mighty blue giants down in Wallara, Wallara Colleagues. And uh, a guy that I was playing with, um, Rob Walton, mentioned that in the business he was working in, there was, uh, there was a job going for a manager. Would I be interested? And, uh, you know, I said I would be. And then, you know, that was my introduction to National Hire, really. Oh, wow. So, so a few beers later, in a, in a Paddington pub with a, a guy who was the general manager at the time, Ron Lawson, um, you know, and then the rest is really history off the back of that. Wow, so really we're talking about moving over to Australia with your surfboard and your backpack, playing rugby league. Rugby union, R actually. Rugby, rugby union, guys, would yeah. correct that. Yeah. That probably makes sense from South Africa. Uh, playing rugby union, having a few beers, and then that's your introduction to the equipment rental industry. That's it. Wow. Do many people know that story? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think a few do. I've probably bought a few over, over, <laughs> over the years with it, but uh, yeah, that's it. Wow. And so when did you first meet Stephen Donnelly? Because obviously National High was part of that. that yeah. Era. So, I mean, I literally met him on the first day in the business. Uh, my first day there was a conference in the Blue Mountains. And it was not, it was really right after they had merged uh, Stephen Donnelly High, St. George Rentals and Abbott High into a single business. At that point, still unnamed. Um, and uh, they were sort of doing a bit of... Um, a bonding kind of exercise to bring all the cultures together. So my first day was a two-day retreat, which was a pretty nice way to start. And then Stephen actually gave me a lift from the conference to my car, which was actually down in the Wollongong branch. And so we had a good chat on the way. So yeah, I got to know him pretty early. Yeah. What was it like meeting Steve for the first time? That was good. I mean, he's a he's a super humble guy. You know, I, you know, and uh, you know, so I mean, that that probably was the thing that came through first. Um, you know, he was on the on the drive down telling me how well I'd gone in the conference and that was the second time he did it and, you know, putting himself down kind of thing, which I thought for, for, for the guy who owned the business, you know, was, was quite refreshing in a way. Mm. And, uh, and then I got in the car and it was really early days of, uh, of mobile phones and stuff. I'm talking really early. And, and probably something that also stood out was quite a progressive thinker because in the car he, he already had a 007 number, which was the very first right. of mobile numbers, you know, it was already sitting in his car there. So... Yeah, I guess those were probably my two first impressions of Stephen. Yeah, when I, I went down to Wollongong to catch up with him in person and have lunch, and same thing, like even today, it, I was amazed on how humble he was. Like he was almost downplaying 
the influence that he's had on the industry, which is, it's probably a testament to what he's achieved because of being so humble. I think it's a good strength for sure. Yeah. Well, I spoke to Steve about you and we, um, we spoke about the history of National Hire and Stephen Donnelly Hire and, and all that sort of stuff. So he had a few things to say about you, which I wanted to bring up. So um, when I asked Steve what he remembers about Greg Parfit, which is obviously those early days of those conferences, he said that uh, working with Steve, uh, working with Greg, sorry, he was an instrumental in the growth of National Hire. He brought enthusiasm, discipline, and the ability to think, th think things through strategically. So when you hear that from someone like Steve, like, how does that make you feel? Well, obviously, time is a great healer, I guess. Um, no, I mean, he probably didn't mention some of the, the you know, more volatile uh, disagreements at the time, but, um, no, I'm very proud. I mean, I've got really fond memories of that time. It was, uh, I was lucky enough, and I feel extremely fortunate about having joined a business with a guy like Stephen at such an early stage. You know, day one, you're in the senior management group. And, um, you know, and he had, he had a vision and he, and he was able to think big, Stephen. Um, you know, and, and, and with Ron Lawson there, I think we had a great balance of, you know, enough ambition, but a real strong focus on people and customer. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so if I look back, as I said, we had a lot of fun. You know, we, we got into it. Um, it was a very real kind of business. It wasn't, you know, a lot of bullshit, frankly, and, you know, or politics in the place. And uh, I feel very lucky to have, have been able to give that get that opportunity. Yeah, a lot of big names came out of those businesses as well that went through. The, like I, I remember when I was talking to Colleen Cohen, she mentioned uh, Adrian Manning was on the counter when she first started. Yep, which I mean, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean those guys, Adrian and uh, and um, Neil Wallace were on the counter at Bexley. They were hiring the same uh, same lawnmower out sort of three times on a Saturday, <laughs> <laughs> paying for it twice on that Saturday. They, yeah, it was a lot of fun. They were, I mean, I can't remember, but they used to do sort of three, four hundred dockets in a day, just crazy stuff. Wow. It's great to see like someone at, the, at that level even being able to work through the, the, those junior roles to understand what it's like to actually work on a counter and, and do three, four hundred dockets in a day. Like it really, I think, influences the person they become Definitely. as a leader. Yeah, I mean, Adrian's a, he's, he's a very grounded guy and... Uh, He's obviously learned a hell of a lot and very professional, but an awesome beginning for him. Mm, definitely. So, so what were the, the three companies you mentioned that merged together? So it was St. George Hire, um, Stephen Donnelly Hire, and a business called Abbott Hire, which is a single branch down in Marrickville, doing a lot of industrial stuff in that sort of area, as well as general hire stuff as well, you know, but they were interpretive industrial stuff in the local area. Yeah. And then that merged to become National Hire. Yeah. Okay, and so what was your first role at National So my Hire? first role, I was brought in initially to run a business called Highlift Rentals, which was like, these are the early days of access coming into Australia. The gear was a mixture of secondhand Fabtex and Marklifts, which were bought you know, for a song out of America. Most of them didn't have very good braking systems, etc. And you know, we, we were sort of, and, and there were a few other key guys, you know, the, the Kennards were involved and a few other businesses had bought similar product in and they were kind of, you know, they'd worked together. The, the industry was quite collaborative in those days. And, um, yeah, so we, we were trying to break through, we were trying to remove, you know, replace scaffold, you know, in the early days before people knew about it. Our rates were terrific. Um, you know, we were able to sort of pay some of this used gear off in, you know, three, four weeks and higher. But wow. still, it took, took the customers a while to kind of catch on that there was some benefit in it. Mm. Uh, so I went from there. They then added, um, we had a, a side shed and portaloo business into it. And I grabbed that one. It was in the same yard. And then... Got a little bit involved as we built the pump business. And, you know, over time, took on marketing. Um, and then finally, sort of, w through the multiple acquisitions and growth, once the seven guys came on board, ended up um, running the East Coast. So I had sort of a manager in, in New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland. And uh, that was my final job before the merger. Wow. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing, even just talking about Sizzlers back then, like, when you brought those scissor lifts or the business brought those scissor lifts into the business, they would have been seen as a niche product. Well, 100%. And today, scissor lifts are a commodity, basically. Every hire company or every rental business has one. It's amazing how there's a transformation of, of the type of gear that's in the industry, isn't it? That's incredible, you know. And it'll freak some people out. But, I mean, the, one of the jobs that stands out because it was, you know, the business was going relatively well and had been quite established at this point. Um, when they built the, the temporary casino in Sydney before they built the Star, we had gear on there, scissor lifts, 20-footers, electrics, for $195 a day, six days a week. 
Wow. You know, and they were there for six months. You know, I mean, those were those were the good old days. You might how, say. how can a rate be higher back then than it is today? Oh, and dramatically higher. You know, and, and thinking we, we were using used gear and that stuff. What was the purchase price of the gear back then? You know, I can't. I mean, I'd say gear cost more too, to be frank. New gear, but you know, we were still. You know, that, that fleet would have been some of the marklifts which were bought secondhand. So, I couldn't tell you exactly, but you know, the returns were exceptional. Yeah, and you mentioned that the safety wasn't the same on the machines back then. No. No, you know, especially the, especially the electric machines, the, the braking systems and, and et cetera, weren't what they are. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, it's amazing how an industry can evolve. And I think I remember when I was chatting to Steve as well, when he went to the US, he said that in Australia, he was going around to different locations and he would see these, these rental yards in Australia and they would have the various bits of gear and he would go to the US and would see all these boom lifts coming out of the yard like dinosaurs basically and so yeah it's uh it's amazing how like even just a country can have an influence on other areas and and what pushes through because there'll be other other things that the us or europe or whatever it is pushes onto australia and vice versa like the digger the, the digger got pushed over yeah. to the us from australia yeah no i think and a lot of the trends have come out of the american market it has been a bit in front of us and i think today i mean the, the, the rental penetration is still still larger over there so plenty of scope here still yeah and so National Hire really went through a lot of acquisitions and growth and, and there was a, a real train of, of growing that business. And you mentioned the culture was a big part of that. So what were some of the key acquisitions that happened in those early days and how did you keep that culture running? Yeah, I mean, I think, I certainly I can remember all of them. A couple that come to mind would be Jigs Hire, Atomic Hire. Um, the All Art acquisition was one of the bigger ones we did and they, they were a very well-established business. Um, and, and bits and pieces around the place. I mean, I guess for me, we did some of them well, and, and we did some not so well, and um, I think we came, became quite good sort of technically at implementing. I think the risk always, and, and probably the lesson that we, we, we learned over time is, even in the selection, you know, I think culture's a really critical thing, and, uh, and, and trying to avoid genocide as well, where you come in and you just, you know, you know every answer in your business, and everyone inside our business is better than everyone inside your business, because we mm. bought you kind of thing. And um, so I think we, we, we probably, we had some good ones, as I said, we, we destroyed a bit of value along the way um, through, through already not, not getting some of those elements early on. I think all businesses that have done quite a few acquisitions at some point, you know, make those errors. Mm. Um, but, you know, we worked, ultimately, you know, we got the recipe right and I think we did, you know, manage to retain some very good people. Um, but I would say, you know, my, my experience with acquisitions is that, that cultural fit early is a really key kind of element of whether you're going to destroy a bit of value or not. And if I looked at the, you know, at the All Art business, for example, I thought they were incredibly entrepreneurial. We were a lot more kind of at that point. We, we, were, we had gone through some growing pains. We were trying to tighten up and, I guess, get control of the thing. And, and those two kind of elements didn't necessarily go well together. And uh, we lost some key guys out of that business quite quickly, mm. which, uh, which wasn't great. And so you mentioned the culture side. So when you're looking at a business that you're going to acquire, is it understanding the ownership and the management team or is it understanding the actual down to the ground staff and how they operate? Like how do you, how do you define that culture fit? Well, it's probably a bit of everything. You can see it when you walk around, you can feel it and what's important, what's not important, the sort of things they look at. Obviously the type of leadership it will come through. So it's pretty much, it's there. Most cultures you can see pretty quickly mm. in, 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 in everything they do really. Yeah, it's probably important to understand the vision for that owner as well, where they fit into the picture. Do they want to stay on? Do they want to be part of the next leadership team? Do they just want to sell and move out of the business? I think if that person isn't clear on their vision as well, it can impact the acquisition and, and the growth. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, and then also, are they able to? You know, when, you've, when you've been the guy making all the calls and then you lose that ability, then it becomes quite difficult as well. Mm. And sometimes the skill set to kind of build it to that point isn't the same skill set, you know, once it gets amalgamated in somewhere and has to sort of fit in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, like someone might start their business and run it for 20 years and they sell to another business and they think that they know the recipe on success. Uh, and then you've got another business that's grown at another rate and you, all your blinders are up. Like you're, you're, you're ignoring everything that they're saying. And then there's, there's constantly clashing. It's like, no, 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 we need to do it this way because I know it works. So, I think that can be a big challenge as well when managers, if they're not on the leadership teams, if they're not on the same page when it comes to being transparent and listening yeah. to ideas. For sure. Yeah, it's a big factor. 
So then what was the transition to eventually uh, where you went to, you mentioned seven group. So what was the process there? Well, you know, we were a small, a small private business. We became a small public business. It was one of the journeys we went through at National. Uh, the seven guys, um, the, the Caterpillar, you know, sort of required that they get a rental strategy going and, uh, and they're pushing that through Cat Rental Store. So they greenfielded uh, that, that opportunity in West Australia, in West Track, and then thought it would be a good idea to kind of speed it up a little. And they bought a, a, sh a major shareholding in National Hire and used that as the vehicle and then subsequently privatised that. And then that was the vehicle that ultimately, with Carlisle, ended up buying the Coates business. Gotcha. And so that's probably a touchy subject. So was it National Hire buying Coates or was it a merge? Like what was that process then? Well, I mean, technically it was the National Hire business and Carlisle buying Coates. I mean, it's obviously a merger when you've got a very powerful brand with the, you know, the capability they had in a much smaller business. So I think it's probably kind to call it a merger, you know, ultimately <laughs> in reality. Yeah. And if you looked at, you know, the key roles after the transaction, you know, a lot of them were still the Coates guys in there. So, you know, I think mergers are pretty fair. Fair term. Call, yeah. And so what was your role when you were up after that merger? Yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to get uh, selected to be the, the EGM for the East Business Unit, which was, you know, I, I think at the time turning over sort of mid, mid two, around about $250 million. It's quite a big step up from where I'd been. Um, and, uh, you know, really was New South Wales ACT. I think mm. 58 branches when we commenced um, after we had, gone through shutting a few in the uh, consolidation of the of the deal. Mm. And what was your involvement in the merger at all? Were you involved at all in that early yeah. stage? Yeah. Well, I mean, before it, before it went down, I mean, I was probably had my brain picked a couple of times. To be fair, you know, the likes of, of, of Andrew Aitken, who was with the Seven Group at the time, um, Peter Gamble, who, who was, the, was the head of uh, business, the chairman. I mean, those guys are good at this stuff. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of what was happening there, we weren't that involved with. Um, I got heavily involved with it once I had my new role in the East and then it was my job to, to implement the, the transaction really through that business, um, which was you know, a, a significant challenge, I guess, bringing two businesses and I think culturally, you know, quite similar in a way. Um, you know, people on both sides were really committed to customer. Um, you know, one was a little bit more professionalised um, being, being such a large business. Um, so we went to work. And, uh, and try to bring the best of both businesses together, I guess, and that was a good challenge for us. Mm. And so then what were some of your roles while you were at Kotai then? Okay, so from, from the East, uh, running the East Business Unit, I got, um, you know, was lucky enough then to get the South Business Unit, um, I guess, tacked on. And so that was Victoria, Tasmania. So I ran that for a while. Um, afterwards, Lee Ainsworth, I think, um, I can't work out whether because, well, the reason he gave me was he thought he, I, I, you know, I'd do well going to the corporate office just to get, I guess, a bit of polish. And, um, you know, but it also might have been to kind of break up the kind of, you know, the empire we were sort of building, as you tend to sure. do when you own, own these kind of business units. They aren't always necessary for the greater good uh, or, or effective. Um, so I went into there and I ran, I had a role which was really dealing with all things revenue generation, I might say, from a corporate perspective. So... Marketing, pricing, Salesforce effectiveness, and then the the, the the national sales guys reported in there, and there were a couple of sort of national guys running the big accounts. So that was the role there. Um, when Michael Byrne came along, you know, he felt that you know the, the role didn't necessarily have the teeth or the accountability in setting the agenda for sales, but not really running the sales. So they then you know, I guess turned it into a real job and the, uh, the sales guys got pulled out of the business units and reported to myself, which was, I think, the only time it has occurred in, in Coates. And I think, I mean, I was pretty happy at that time to be the guy getting them, not the guy in the business unit having them taken away, mm. I've got to be perfectly honest. So there was 320-odd sales guys then right through the country that came through that channel, um, which was a terrific role for me, kind of billion-dollar sales target and, uh, and also the opportunity to... To, to get involved with different industries, you know, some of the mining up in the Pilbara, some of the big oil and gas projects, those sorts of things. It was an exciting time to be in that role. Mm. And really, I, I guess I, I got to see a lot more of Australia than I had. Um, so, terrific role. Yeah. What's it like being responsible for 320 sales reps? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, obviously, you've got a very, in that business, I mean, Coats are terrifically resourced. It's a really good channel. 
um, with, 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 with lots of layers. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the role. It's one thing I have found, um, and I'm not sure what it is, but the sort of scale has never kind of really been too much of a challenge. I think what you end up doing is getting more resources and, and, and potentially, I mean, if you, if you, if you enjoy building teams and, and running people, it becomes almost easier. You know, you have more of your energy on, on that than on, on, on execution of tasks, so to speak. Mm. So that kind of worked for me. Yeah, it's almost identifying the people that are making a big influence in the business and promoting them to new roles so they can manage teams and whatnot. If you try and do everything yourself and micromanage, it's just going to collapse. That's right? right, you can't. Yeah. And that, that sort of, I, I guess it does suit my style, that type of role. Yeah, a billion dollar target. Yeah. That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I don't have that today, yeah. So no, it was. But um, that's a big machine cuts. Um, you know, a very strong business with very good market share. Yeah. And then, so there was a lot of acquisitions happened when, uh, after that as well, AH Plant Hire, um, Rec Air, I think was also part of that. Rec Air was before. So before, before we got there, Rec Air okay, had yep. already occurred. And so just a lot of acquisitions happening in the 90s and like around that period, which a lot of change in, in the businesses. So how did the business manage that change and, and what influence did you have over that? Because there's a lot of movement, a lot of changes, a lot of influence, a lot of happy people, a lot of unhappy people. I think, as you mentioned, the acquisition, don't, things don't always go perfect. So where, where did you sort of fit in that picture? Yeah, well, if, if I go back to when, when, I, when I got into the East, um, Put a lot of energy. Uh, I actually used a guy called Wayne Pierce, who an ex-footy player, but a, a very good business coach, very big on on, on team. Um, and and I guess we we started off once we had everyone well to get everyone in their in their roles. We, we we made sure we ran very fair process. There was always a panel. There was a there was a coach guy on the panel, the national hire person on the panel, and I had an independent guy, guy called Bruce, excuse me, Bruce Rowe, who. Um, you know, he was a terrific guy. Had he was at the end of his career, um, and and we just try to make everything fair and, and, and get rid of the, the, the agendas. So that was important. And um, we also try to look for the strengths in each other and kind of really leverage it rather than just go, well, we know how to do it. You know, I was lucky enough that coming from National High, I never felt like the conqueror, so to speak. So always very respectful of what those guys had. Mm. We were big on setting boundaries and rules for how we operated. You know, and things like. And we went down multiple levels in the organisation around, you know, always f follow the org chart because people were in the habit and when you do these things, they keep going back to their old channel. They go around the back door and then effectively and actively forming relations with people you didn't have. So you kind of got rid of that, that noise in the system where people were uncomfortable going a certain pathway and, 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 and we put those things in line quite quickly. Uh, and then also very big on if you've got something to say, you need to say it directly to someone, good or bad. You know, and we really very quickly stamped out any, all that backstabbing that can go in these political environments. And I think if I look at how quickly we came out of the ground um, comparative to the other businesses, I think it probably helped the kind of that real diligence in that place really helped us unite quickly and, and get going because um, we, we, got, we got less turmoil, I guess, from the transaction through it. Yeah. And then the, what were the business units at that point in time? Um, so it was that was after. So for for Coates at that point, it was all geographic. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. southeast, northwest. Gotcha. That was after all the people yeah, came together. P six two four. Yeah. That's it. I think Adrian mentioned that when I was chatting to him. Yeah. So so when when did you finish up with Coates, and then like what was your next challenge, and how so did that sort of pan out? Two thousand and seventeen, I left Coates, and uh, had a bit of time off. I then through through an ex HR guy um, who worked with me in Coates before, Harry Ross got sort of put in touch with a mob called Inchcape, um, which at the time, um, well, they are a very big uh, public company in the UK, uh, one of the largest distributors and, um, and retailers of motor vehicles in the world. And I got to run a business called Auto Nexus for them. I was the MD for Auto Nexus in Australia. That business, um, we, we, we stored and processed a lot of vehicles coming in and distributed them, you know, come off the docks. Um, we, we ran parts for some of our own brands, Subaru, et cetera, also BMW, VW, and those sorts of guys. We did upfits on things like um, um, ambulances, police cars, and then also did some aftermarket work on cars. So everything associated with vehicles apart from kind of retailing them, I guess, sure. um, that was our job. And we had sort of a blend of internal customers through the Inkscape group and external customers. Yeah, and then transferable skills. How did that sort of pan out? You've got a career in hire, you've worked for 
25 years, 30 years in the industry, and then you're, you're sort of stepping out. You, you go into a new industry. So I think some people say that once you get in higher, it's hard to leave. So where was your mindset at that point in time? How did those skills transfer? Yeah, I, was kind of, I, was, I was happy to move on. I was really, I really enjoyed the, the culture there as well. Um, you know, they had a, a fairly, I expected the vehicle game to be a bit different. They were pretty down to earth guys. My skills were, were well valued, um, which was kind of reassuring. And, um, you know, I felt once again, when you get to, you know, when you get lucky enough to get to that level, you, you know, it is quite transferable because you're really just about trying to build teams, um, you know, help, help people do their jobs better, sort of empower them to and maybe get rid of some of the obstacles for them. So we just said about the same thing. One of the things I noticed there was, you know, a lot of guys had come up through warehousing backgrounds and that these not not always large margin businesses, not a lot of money being spent on development. So we built a kind of base level leadership course and we started everyone who was even a team leader, anybody all the way up did the same course. And we started to get a lot of stuff going in that direction, build the culture of that, building trust, etc. And in my own team, we went down that same pathway of a lot of feedback, a lot of openness, no silos, everything's on the table, you know, not there with the, the you know, the parts guy giving his little download in the month and, and everyone just behaving themselves and waiting for them to finish and doing that, but it was robust. Yeah. So used all that stuff, I guess. And so you mentioned earlier that when you manage people and teams and, and organizations, you want everything on the table. You, you want them to be honest and just, if you're gonna say something, just say it. A lot of people get nervous uh, saying stuff that maybe they think they might get criticized on or they might get in trouble or they have an opinion on. So how do you manage people to become more transparent without feel, having fear? It's, I mean, it's, it is difficult. Um, when, when I started doing it, and I, I only sort of worked that out quite recently, when I was in that group in, in, in the East in Coates, it was incredibly robust. I know some of the, you know, some of the comments from some of the corporate guys used to come out there and try and roll something. It was quite uncomfortable for them. We had a group of people that were, you know, probably a little bit too similar and extremely robust guys and, and girls. And, um, you know, so it was incredibly robust and no one was easily offended and a lot of thick skins in that room. But that isn't always the case. And I think the thing is to start gently, you know, building trust. You know, there's a, there's a model that Wayne introduced, a thing called Jahari's Window, which is all a little bit about exposing yourself and becoming more human and, and, and then we sort of connect easier if we do that sort of stuff. So building that stuff up, making sure there's lots of positive feedback, um, and then some of the negative, or improvement feedback, I should say, coming in. And uh, you know, ultimately, do, do quite a bit of speed dating, so to speak, just pair off and before you start a meeting one-on-one -on -one and give each other some you know, recognition, and then give them a gift of improvement as well afterwards, and then change partners for the stuff. So a lot of that sort of thing sure. um, to get the get the energy going. I like that gift of improvement. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is ultimate. I mean, that's one of the things, I mean, people find it hard to to give people advice, but there's so many blind spots we have. And I think, you know, it's, it's a massive disservice if, if people aren't aware and it's hard to get better if you're not aware, so. Mm. And it's probably an art form in providing that gift of advice as well without coming across too uh, arrogant or, or direct or whatnot. So it's important for managers to also know how to communicate effectively with their staff as well. Like, so what, how do you normally deliver that sort of message to someone? Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. I think exposures are good, like most things is a pretty good thing. So starting off, you know, having a little bit of trust and starting off and, and then taking it almost down a layer when you just join in with them um, is useful to, to build it. Um, mostly practice, um, but you need that trust in place and you need to have, I mean, you've got to be coming from a very genuine place. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm not the most, you know, I can be quite a direct communicator, but I think, you know, generally if you're in it, and I think people will, will, will take the style for what it is because they know the intent is right. I mm. think if you've got that culture going through where everyone's just trying to get better and help each other, um, you know, you get the momentum in it. Yeah, and I think when you do provide that gift of improvement, I love that quote, <laughs> uh, and they make, they make the change or they try and make the change and you notice that and you, rec and you, you bring it up in the next week or month, that's a big, uh, big thing, yeah? 100%, and you, you do get the chance. If you're doing it often, you do get the chance to, you know, to give your recognition for it. Um, you know, I think you've got to make sure, particularly in all the, all the management books that I'll tell you, I mean, you have to make sure there's a lot of recognition coming for the improvement opportunity to be acknowledged. So it's that balance. You just got to keep 
keep coming. Mm. Um, we didn't necessarily start that way in Coates. We started sort of one-on-one, -on -one and as I said, we were lucky there was a robust crew. Yeah, very good. So eventually you came back to the, the hire industry. Yeah. Uh, today you are the CEO of Orange Hire. So how did that eventually come about? Well, I mean, I was, I was enjoying the Inchcape gig. I got tapped by a headhunter um, that there was a job going at Orange. I, I'd sort of made a commitment to myself that one thing I had done at Coates, I'd, I mean, incredibly grateful for a, for a very fortunate career, but I hadn't proactively managed it in many ways. And so I thought, you know, I always said to myself, well, whatever happens now, you go along to meetings, which in the past I might have knocked back, because you never know what you learn, you don't know what comes. I met with the Joyces, Stephen and Jeremy Joyce, um, had a couple of really good chats, found their approach incredibly refreshing um, in, in the you know, massive focus for them on people and customer. And they got, they got the fact, you know, 100% that this business is entirely people. And, uh, and, and they were actively measuring engagement and customer experience. That got me sort of sitting up straight and thinking quite hard about it. And we did, we, 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 we had a long dance. Um, you know, we probably spoke for well, many, many months before we, we agreed that it was a good fit. And then, uh, yeah, then, uh, then I came on board. Yeah, so I wanna backtrack a little bit. So you mentioned you never actively managed your career. What does that mean? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, uh, in, in multiple ways, I think in, in my own development, um, you know, understanding my own weaknesses and then trying to trying to work on them in, in maximising my strengths even in, in having a plan, I guess. You know, I was lucky enough, as I said, to be in the right place at the right time as this business grew and ended up in, in some amazing jobs. But, you know, a lot of it was because of the timing or really, I guess, other people's, you know, foresight in, you know, in putting these deals together that I happened to be kind of, you know, sitting there waiting to take advantage of. So I think you know having a plan and, and knowing where, where you want to go would be more effective and, and, and listening to people, taking opportunities, just being more proactive in how you ran it, mm. I think would be would be something to do. And yeah. then also definitely more development. Whilst I learned an awful lot, you know, inside those roles, I think there was plenty of stuff that I might have, you know, you know I might have read more, I might have just investigated or uh, you know, more things and, and understood a bit more. Yeah, it's almost like if you manage your career more effectively and you manage that development, you have a bit more control of your fate on, wh on direction you're going rather than you being at the right place at the right time and people recognizing your effort previously. You can almost say, all right, my goal is to do X, Y, and Z by the time I'm 25 or 30 or whatever it is. I want to learn this skill. I want to do this. I want to live in this country or whatever it is that you're doing. And I think most people probably don't do that, I'd say. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of us go along with it. And I would be, I'd be careful to be too, you know, too focused on a date, etc. I think ambition can can get in the way of some very good careers, and 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 sometimes get in the way of your own behaviour. But I think there is definitely the need to have a plan um, would be important. And I think also, you know, I always had this proudly this badge of, you know, like you know, I don't play politics. And I think in a way, you know, so very direct. But I think you know, if you're dealing with people. You know, politics is maybe the wrong word, but it is you need to adapt your style and you need to be prepared to kind of change the way you operate depending on who you're facing, the audience at the time, I think. And I think for me that was, was something I didn't necessarily get to early on. Mm. It uh, took a while to get there. Yeah, with me, like I, I moved to the US for, t for 12 months and some, a mistake that I made was before I moved over, I said, I want to achieve these goals in 365 days, basically. And instead of like just going with it and figuring it out and moving along the way, it was almost like a clock that was counting down. And I'd be looking at, oh, I've got seven months to go, six months to go. And like, it adds this pressure that you don't need rather than you trying to fo focus on what the future looks like rather than the, the end goal with a certain date, which I think I really like that you mentioned. Yeah, I think sometimes you get over-focused and you also get so focused on yourself that you, you miss others and it's, it's, you know, it doesn't work for you because you know, become a little bit selfish if you become a little over-absorbed in those deadlines in particular because you're in a rush and, mm. and sometimes you'll, you'll miss good opportunities or you'll go through people. Yeah, yeah, and no, I like that advice. That's definitely relevant to me as well, I like that. So for the listeners that are overseas, uh, not everyone knows who Orange Hire is. Do you just want to give the rundown of who is Orange Hire? What do you rent out? Where do you, what's, what's your demographics and what's your geography? Okay, so um, it's, it's a business with two, two verticals in hire. Uh, we've got earth moving and compaction and associated attachments, et cetera, and then traffic, which is electronic traffic and 
barriers, basically. Um, east coast of Australia, uh, we've got a, about 90-odd people working for us. Um, it's not a big business. Um, we've got a very young fleet. We've got a model that really turns our fleet early, um, which gives us high-quality gear. We get to leverage our buy buying power, et cetera, and then get out of it you know, at retail, so quite proactively sell at retail rather than wholesale auctions, et cetera. Um, and um, yeah, we try and cover as much ground as we can with a, the, the most limited uh, overhead and, and branch structure we can. So reach as far as we can with you know only uh, seven branches. Seven branches. And so when you came on, what was the, the number of branches? Yeah, I think it was, I think we've added two, so there were five branches when I got on board. Okay. And uh, these types of branches for the listeners are they hubs? Are they like how, how are they? Yeah, they operated hubs, and we, we tr as I said, we try and reach as far as we can geographically, even using some sort of quasi-agency type arrangements to leverage other people's cost base and, and our fleet, so to speak. So, um, but but you know, most of our revenue is generated through the capital cities on the east coast. Mm. It might be an interesting topic to, to go down actually. So. Not every business has converted to the whole hub uh, location where you've got like a, a single location where you can move transport and move things around as needed based on the location. So do you want to explain what the branches used to be like maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, where you would have lots of branches in locations to try and fulfill a market compared to what the hub model is? Like what's the key differences? Well, I mean, it depends on your product, I guess, too. So if you've got branch, if you've got customers dropping in, through convenience to pick up stuff on the run, well, I think you need a broad network of branches. Generally, that, that stuff comes also with, with high FU equipment. So the kind of cost of the network is, you know, is, is there, but you've also got more efficiency on the capital, I guess. Um, you know, when you're dealing with bigger products like we do, you know, there, there's pressure on returns. And I mean, one of the things I've seen in the higher game is you know, the, the higher the capital cost, generally the lower the return um, or the price per per day on its, against its original cost. So I think in those games you need to try and, and streamline distribution and reach as far as you can through transport networks, etc. So it's mm. probably more about the type of product you're distributing than anything else. Yeah, I was chatting to RPM Hire, uh, which started down in Victoria uh, with Ash, Ash Woodcock. And so he was mentioning that all their inquiries go via Melbourne. Uh, and so they manage their, their Sydney location, which I think is out at Ingleburn, I think. Uh, and it's amazing that because no one really goes to pick stuff up, like you can divert calls and whatever it is to any location. You can be in a different country if you really wanted to. So, and he was uh, giving me some ideas or he's floating some ideas like, well, we could technically expand overseas and still keep the quality of our customer service based upon our hub. That's something that's really interesting, isn't it? When you don't have customers that are walking in. Not is. I mean, the opportunities there with technology, et cetera. I mean, there are nuances around markets and, you know, and you've got to overcome people who actually understand, you know, even when someone's describing a, a job and or a location, it's better if you've got a clue rather than, <laughs> I, I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. But, I mean, the possibility is there for sure. And we all saw during COVID how remotely we could operate and we weren't anywhere near the customer at that point as well. Yeah. Um, and in our own business, we, we do end up, you know, quite happily, you know, shutting branches, telecoms and, and diverting to another branch while there's a meeting on or something like that. And it's, it's very functional, so mm. it's definitely possible. Yeah, talking about uh, terminology, one of my friends just got a job at Canard Tire in their call centre, and uh, they, they take calls from New Zealand as well. And so he was learning all the names of the equipment in Australia, and then he got his first call from New Zealand, and they were describing a piece of equipment, <laughs> and it was like, that's not on the list. <laughs> like, that's the, I don't know what that's called, because like, they name something completely different. Like, if you went to the US and said hire, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. That's a great example. That's like the 101 one. Yeah, no, it is different. I mean, I just remember Donga, and I think Donga could be even Victoria for a shed, and I was like, <laughs> pardon me? <laughs> oh, that's just in this country. That's so funny. All right, well... Look, we understand uh, Orange Hire itself. Now, there's, they've gone through some phases as well with Orange Hire with private equity uh, getting involved as well, which, uh, which is Arcadia Capital. So how did that happen? How did that eventuate? Uh, what does that mean for Orange Hire? And just give us a bit of a rundown. Yeah, um, well, it, it was always the plan um, when I got here that we would do a transaction like that. We ended up, for, for a number of reasons, doing going a bit earlier than we thought. Um, the process itself was really, it was really good. I think it, it, you know, when you when you go down a path like that, you have to have a good think about yourselves. 
you need to you know, be able to see your own weaknesses and then kind of really leverage your strengths as well. So the process was very informative and, uh, and really consolidated at that time exactly who we were and how we felt about ourselves. And then you, you, know, then you can get out the road and pitch it. Um, Lee and Sam coming on board um, has been good. I mean, you know, of, of all the potential buyers, I mean, we were the most excited that we got those guys. I mean, they definitely seem to, at, at the time, and, and they've proven to share our kind of belief that a business like this is about the people, you know, and then about your customer. Um, and so happy to invest in that stuff and go along with it. And, and, and that is the culture they are also trying to build. So very good alignment. So, you know, we, we didn't skip a beat, to be perfectly honest, between the two styles of ownership and we're able to just keep moving. Now, the goal with these guys is, like we were before, is, is growth and, uh, and, and profitability and returns. And then ultimately, you know, keep it in a, in a shape that, that, that if someone comes along and has got some, some further vision for a different future for it, you know, parts with some money and, uh, and, and a new journey starts. So, yeah, but pretty much for us, you know, inside the business, you know, we're still focused on the same things, and uh, which is, is our people and our customers. Yeah, and I think it's very important, even when you mention what that future might look like, you might be acquired in 10 years, whatever it is, that you will still keep that same cultural fit and you won't sell to someone that doesn't have the same values and cultural fit uh, because it's very important for both ways, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it would... And, I'm, I, and I don't control that. So, I mean, I, I think it, it makes sense that, that someone, like, like we said in acquisitions, that you pick up people where there is cultural alignment because the opportunity of extracting all the value is much higher. Mm. So one would assume someone who comes along, gets us, would, 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 would want to invest in that. Yeah, no, definitely. So I think for smaller businesses that haven't been involved in private equity, that is either people are moving to an, an organization or maybe they're growing and they want to get involved, how do you manage relationships with private equity firms for an equipment rental business? That's a good call. I mean, are you talking about how you get to know them in the first place? Or? I think, yeah, the initial relationship and then the ongoing maybe reporting or mechanisms or how engaged they are, those sort of yeah. things. Yeah, and I think it, it varies, it, you know, company to company. It's, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of nuance between the different businesses. Um, in most cases, I think um, what, what happens is they want you to get on with running the company because that's what you do. And they're very good you know, sitting around the edges and making sure you're getting the best possible financial, you know, support you can do. And then also, you know, that the, some of the strategic element and the strategic thinking, I think they bring to the table too. So generally, you know, there's a good balance in skills that comes into it. Certainly, you know, right going back to coach, you know, we were very anxious about private equity guys coming into our business and, and you know, brought a lot of value from day one, really, in, in, in the type of thinking. So I think you're going to get an uplift in that stuff. Um, hopefully, they've got enough faith and trust and they, they, they've bought into the business, which is why they, they've invested their money, to allow you the freedom to keep going. Um, and then from there, you know, for us, we, we catch up once a week for a short chat, most weeks, and then we have a board meeting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the reality is, though, like anything else, and, you know, when it's going well, it's easy. Um, you know, if you come back and see me in another time, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I've got a different view. Sure, yeah. It's, uh, and I think... When you're at that level and you're at that board meeting, I think you almost need to be the barrier between you and the business as well. You don't want any any stresses or, or pressure coming from that private equity to flow down to the organization as well. It's, is that part of your role as well to make sure that you're that barrier? Yeah, to be fair, I mean, if, if, if there was a need to, it definitely is. You know, at the moment, you know, we, we're very encouraging to get Lee and Sam through our business and getting down into the, and, and getting to know people. Um, you know, they bring the exact same message we do and, uh, and I think it's good for people to know that there's just great alignment there. Mm. So they, you know, always welcome and do get it out and about and we don't sort of accompany them and corral them around the joint. Um, they, they go where they want to. If, they want to. if they're going to Queensland, they'll drop you on the branch sort of thing, anytime. Uh, yeah, that's amazing knowing that you've got this private equity firm and then the, the staff see these people turn up and they, they realize these are real people. This isn't just like some bank that's turned up and there's money there. It's these are real people that are invested in our company and we know who they are. That's, yeah. that's a pretty cool thing to have in the business. Yeah, and, and sharing the same values. So it's, a, it's, it's an effective model. So look, you've got a lifetime of experience in, in hire and leadership and growing and you've, had, you've worked alongside some of the legends of the industries through uh, the National Hire Days and the Coates Hire Days. So what, what type of leadership and culture are you bringing to Orange Hire? Well, I think um, coming back to that point, which I, you know, I, I would have repeated a lot already, 
you know, very important to get you know, engagement in the staff and get that just discretionary um, effort going. But really important to see people grow and become the best version of themselves. If you can create that environment, that's very re rewarding and really trying to do that. And then big focus on customer. So, you know, the two key measures in our business are we, we do an engagement survey every fortnight. You know, it's, it's sent through online. So, that, so, so the engagement number and then NPS survey through our customers, which we, we, we do really at the end of most hires. You know, those things are fundamental to driving what we do and the focus is there. And then from there, you know, obviously you've been around the game, you, you understand the key levers. Trying to not tap into too many key levers, but um, you know, accountability around the important things and, and making pe sure people understand the, the relativity in some of the measures. You know, there's always a lot of things to measure, but what really matters and, and, and what takes precedence over another thing. So you don't want a guy f you know, overly fascinated on transport recovery, missing out opportunities to drive big EBITDA over here, which you could do even if you got a 80% you know, transport recovery on a deal. So really helping people understand the commercials and the big picture. Um, and as I said, you know, I mean, you can't have you can't have highly engaged people without accountability because they want ownership, but they also want to see that their teammates are being held accountable for mm -hmm. what they do. So really pushing those things um, are important to us, um, and then trying to be, you know, trying to keep learning and developing and, and, and having that learning mindset. And we send, and it was really for me. I mean, when I, when I got on board at Orange with the Joyces, they had a really you know, awesome approach to ongoing learning. And there wasn't a week where I didn't get sent, watch this, this uh, YouTube thing or check this book out. Or, and it really opened my thinking up. And so we share a lot of stuff around the business as well, trying to kind of expand the way we think. And then on top of that, I guess there's this theme coming through now on, on well-being and particularly in these sorts of environments, making sure there's a lot of energy put at everyone's well-being. And we come to work sort of physically but also mentally and emotionally kind of well to give our best. Mm. And we look after each other in that regard. Yeah, very nice. So let's take a step back. Uh, for the listeners that don't know what NPS stands for, it stands for Net Promoter Score. So what is that, just for the listeners? Well, I mean, it's a hard measure on customer experience, I guess, in a nutshell. It's a global standard. It's a tough standard because really, you know, a nine and a ten are the only things that score as good scores for you. And you get into a six and you're already into a negative detracting score. So a simple equation between, you know, your... Your, your total, your, your, your promoters less your detractors against the total number, num the score. Great benchmark, you can see, you know, people that do um, collect it, particularly big public companies, et cetera, you can see their, their scores and they're, they're out there in the world. So you've got someone to bench yourself off, what you know, benchmark yourself off good brands, brands that you respect, even if they're not in the same industry as you. Mm. Um, so a really important number for us and in our business, Every single person who works for us is remunerated on that number. It's the only measure that we all share as far as an incentive goes. Um, so keeping it front and centre. And how do you how do you measure that? You said you send surveys out. Yeah, so we've got I mean, we've got software that we use basically, and just automatically, you know, all all, all our, our contracts information at the end of the hires gets pushed through, and then the, the system identifies if someone hasn't been surveyed in the last sixty days, they'll get sent another survey, okay. and that's just stuff comes in gets calculated through the software and uh, we get to see all in particular feedback um, we're very responsive because money's involved with it the whole business kind of sits up and uh, yeah so we, we read every comment every customer makes and uh, you know we these conversations are occurring right through our business um, there'd be no one in our business who doesn't get it and how do you send it text messages email how do they get the yeah service? they get it through email mostly um, we've got the option of email and text um, We've, I thought text would actually be more effective, but all the data says email is more effective and you, you're kind of not that invasive. When a guy's, often they're working, they're happy to be asked, but if, you, if a guy's on the weekend or sometime in a private moment and he gets a text, it's not always that friendly. Sure. So we push it through email. And so you wanted to give some examples of questions that someone might get at the end of a hire? Well, it's really a simple question of whether or not you'd recommend the business and it's, it's driven and what would you score them and it's driven off that it's a simple message and then if they give a number then could you kind of explain yourself or would you give us some comments on that sure and so, so it's, it's really simple and really fast yeah and so if someone gives a bad score that's a flag to say we need to contact and find out what happened on that hire what went wrong yeah. there'll be Delivery was late. We charged too much, or we charged too like whatever it might be. Is that just an investment? Yeah, we'll go straight. We we'll, we'll always call them and say, you know, even if it's a great score, we might ring and say, "Well, really appreciate your score. Thanks very much." 
Um, but if it's, if it's not a good score, we want to understand it. And quite often we'll try and fix something for that customer or compensate them for it. And, uh, and maybe, and hopefully, um, ultimately change something within the business if, if you're getting a repeated mistake. Mm. It really builds up this, re- this true rapport between you and your customer. Like they, they, they are actually being heard, I think is very important because a lot of people don't do surveys. Yeah, well, hopefully they, they do get that vibe. And I think it, it also for us, I mean, most importantly keeps it front of mind that it is really important and, uh, and that we stay on our toes. Mm. And so you mentioned benchmarking as, mo- as well. So what other tools are you using in that area? Okay, so we so we also do engagement surveys, as I said, and we'll look across you know what is best practice through businesses there, and we're trying to look at that. Um, otherwise, you know, every any public company that's 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 publishing data, certainly guys like United, you know, with a global benchmark to produce scale, and some of the KPIs they do, which is quite phenomenal, and just all the key measures, you know, right through from, you know, obviously revenue and EBITDA you know, fleet performance, FU, some of the TU stuff. Um, turnaround time is a really critical thing in our business as well. So looking at where you can see that data, looking for it and seeing what the good guys are doing. Mm. Um, and then for me, pricing is, you know, and the guys who've worked with me will know pricing is something I pretty uh, feel pretty strong about, in, in, especially in our game with such a fixed cost base. And um, so pricing data, both internal and then, you know, something like Rouse Analytics to help benchmarking and driving uh, driving decisions rather than, I mean, for me, it's, I'll take any data point over noise because noise is, uh, there's always noise somewhere yeah. and it's not always accurate. Yeah, I really hope more businesses in Australia get on services like like Rouse Analytics because America, there's a lot of American companies are on there and you see a lot of data. I think um, you probably can compare yourself to those US companies, but I think having more and more of a, uh, of a base in Australia, I think will really build up that, that database of knowledge because I think it's quite amazing when you can at least just look at a benchmark and think, all right, where do we fit in this area? Like, why are we doing this? How do we change? What, what more equipment do we want to buy? What are the trends that we're looking at in the industry? Yeah, I think so. It, it allows businesses to, you know, be clear about their own strategies and, uh, and how they're performing against that strategy. And, you know, that's important. Mm, no, definitely. Yeah, so I guess what, what we want to talk about now is just to talk through some of maybe the the challenges that you faced in your early part of your career, and then how do they differ from the challenges that you face today? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the game is largely the same. If I was to be perfectly honest, and I come back to the thing, it's a people game and people haven't changed that much. So I think the fundamentals are, are still very similar. You know, one of the key differences is, you know, you, you can't function without at least reasonable to good IT capability, you know, I mean, there's, there's, you know, ultimately you need that as a, just a basic enabler. So you need good systems. Safety is is probably the biggest thing that has shifted in the focus in on safety. Um, you know, it's a very different game from that perspective, and we're much more knowledgeable now. And I guess, um, yeah, it is the industry. I mean, on whole, I think just generally workplaces are, are better for it. So that's been the significant area of focus that businesses have to have had to adapt to. And that whole thing about sort of that, that governance area and, and social things and environmental things are probably more in the spotlight now. Mm. Probably should have, should have always been, to be fair, um, but, but, but there's more emphasis in businesses to focus in on those areas, I think. So, yeah, some of the, the changes were, you know, are really around you know, being a better citizen and taking better care of people. And then the other key one is around that IT. On top of that, I mean, as you go back to my $195 a day for a second-hand electric scissor, I mean, you know, there's more competition. Um, there's better informed, you know, mostly through the inf- availability of information. Our customers are much better informed. So that all that puts some pressure through margin. So you've got to be better at what you do. Mm. Um, you know, I look back and go, where was all the money we made and why didn't we make more, in, you know, in, in those sorts of price opportunities? You know, I think now the businesses operate tighter, better systems, better controls. So let's talk about pricing a little bit. You seem quite passionate about it. So let's say a new rep comes on board, he goes out and he thinks that the rate's too high and he starts changing the rate because he wants to win a deal. Doing that, what impact does that have on a higher business? Well, I think, I mean, it's like any business, you know, you have to be pricing profitably and you have to know your cost base and where your line is. Um, it is a tricky game, pricing in hire, because you know there is a cost for gear sitting in your yard too. And, uh, and some 
parts of the business, and you know, Barry's is a good example, it's quite whippy. Um, so you do find you've got super high utilization and it can drop quite quickly to very low, and then you've got to make a decision at some point. You know, where is the line? And the difference between an awesome market and, and, and a very average market, you know, could be half or more. So you are going to need to at times flex depending on what's going on. But I think really the decisions need to be a bit more strategic than just some guy being told by a customer, this is where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I mean, and all due respect to, to the sales guys because they play such an important part, but they're not always the best equipped to make strategic decisions over pricing. So for me, it's getting as many data points as you can, um, certainly making as much comparison having a look at, you know, what's the average price being achieved by a certain salesperson against another one and why is it different? Mm. Um, if I look, you know, you know, I've seen markets, you know, Coates, you know, at one point in the east, there was the, the rate was 14% higher than it was in the south and we couldn't find any reason for it. And it simply had been that we had spoken about it like lunatics for the three years before that and it hadn't necessarily got the same amount of air in the south. So it's, it's almost, I think, pricing... Um, having good data points, knowing where your bottom line is, and then pushing it as a cultural thing, as a belief thing, as a pride thing, and really talking about it often. I think you can impact it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, over the top of that, you've got sort of the strategy of dealing with your utilisation. But those decisions, I think, need to be taken off the front line. Um, or, 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 you know, you, you're at risk of, uh, of doing significantly more transactions at a loss than you want to. And in terms of buying equipment, uh overfinancing a business as well. There's been numerous cases in the past uh, where businesses have been overfinanced, uh, they've been dropping low rental rates and those businesses eventually went under. So where's the sort of mix? Like wh- where do you normally find that, that sweet spot uh, for financing? Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't have an answer for you on that one. I mean, there are so many variables involved. Interest rates are pretty good at the moment. Um, I think it's it's, it's the structure of your total debt. It's the average age of your fleet that's really important and the value that's in your fleet, you know, even in a depressed market compared to, you know, I think you need to make sure you've got some good coverage on that sort of stuff compared to um, your, your, your total level of debt. Um, you know, and then it's really, you know, everyone's got their own appetite for risk. Um, you, have to, you have to borrow to grow these businesses. They're capital hungry. Um, so, you know, I don't think I'm in a position, if you, if you spoke to... You know, the guys who own us and or, you know, our CFO will probably give you a better answer or will give you a definitive view. My view is, um, you know, you don't want to be overly leveraged in any business, but these businesses do have to play at a relatively highly leveraged space. Mm. It's very stressful for startups that come into the equipment game. Uh, you almost need to have the contracts won before you start the business because you, you get these uh, these contracts with these finance agreements and you can't have your, gas, your gear sitting there because now you've got your business on the line and you've got maybe even your house on the line for these small startups. So I think there's just a lot of pressure there to make sure that you're not overcompensating yourself. But you also, as you said, if you want to grow the business, you, you need to capitalize. And yeah. You- I think the big risk, I mean, one of the things, you know, when we started, I mean, the, the limitation on trying to grow a higher company, and as I said before, Steve Donnelly is a pretty big thinker and, you know, you were always restrained by, by capital and capital was harder to come by in those days. And it has got easier and certainly OEM, you know, related capital has changed the game a lot. So guys could go out and, you know, it could, build, it could take you years to build a fleet of 100 bits of access and then someone could be gifted 100, you know, um, pieces you know, overnight by one of the one of the suppliers and then, you know, no payments for the first six months, nine months, whatever. I think those type of kind of false economies you've got to be careful of because, you, you know, it, it's, fu- it's fantastic when you start but then the reality of it bites quite quickly. Mm. So I think, you know... The risk is in, in people who haven't had to kind of develop the capability to, to, to run their cash flow well you know, and, and having big honeymoon periods early thinking they've got all the answers and then it bites pretty hard. Sure. So it's, you know, good financial advice is absolutely critical in this game um, because you will be pushing yourself. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier on that your average age of your fleet is quite low as well. What's the mentality for that? Yeah, well, we run a fleet age um, sort of just over two years. So two to two and a half years average, you know, we'll turn the gear quite early, and that's for, for, for serialised or, or motorised gear. You know, A, you've, you've got a lot of its time in, in warranty still, so you haven't got big costs. Your customers like good new gear. You're getting to benefit with, you know, the latest upgrades, et cetera. 
we find obviously we're almost in, in a lot of businesses will maybe run a big bit of kit for for 10 years or something send it to auction so we're buying twice in that cycle sometimes two and a half times in that cycle which gives us for our scale good buying power and then we feel found we found a quite a good sweet spot to hop out so the the amount of original costs we're getting back when we're buying at these kind of strong rates, um, you know, selling them into the market and retail, so we're able to get extract a large portion of the original cost back. Mm. That works for us, works from our brand perspective, customer experience, and then financially. And how do you, where do you send that equipment after the two, three years? Well, we period? sell it ourselves directly. So we take, you know, and we, we, we built some retail capability. That's the only way you're gonna really extract the true value. If you send it to auction, you're gonna, obviously someone else is getting some of that. Sure. And so you're selling overseas, or is it local? Or? I mean, we're small enough to get everything gone here. Okay. Um, early on in the piece, we did a, a survey to, to build our initial strategy, and you know, in, in that earth-moving space, you know, 92 plus percent of our customers all own gear. So that kind of paranoia about, you know, I don't want to sell them because they they're higher, they're buying anyway. Mm. So then, you know, what you're able to do is become, you know, just a broader set of solutions for them. So you'll hire to and hard, hard to buy it, or you can just buy it if you want to at some point. So yeah. I think they're going to do it anyway. So yeah. getting more involved in that, and for us, our size, the market here is um, well and truly big enough to, to retail. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's learn a bit more about you. So who do you think played a big influence on you from a mentor perspective over your career? So, I mean, obviously, we've spoken about Stephen, um, and, um, and there was a guy working with Stephen at the time, Ron Lawson, and um, you know, Ron, Ron had a big impact. You know, he, I think both of those guys very values-driven, very decent about how they conduct their business. Um, but then also sort of out-the-box thinkers and any, anything was on the table and we were small enough to do some, some interesting stuff around, just around remuneration or benefits and, and some of the stuff we didn't do and thought of was pretty out there, but they were thinking about it. Um, you know, I'd say on Stephen as well, you know, I mean, some of the things that you would mention in strategic sessions, you'd think, are you out of your mind? And if I look back to some things that actually came to fruition, you know, it, it, it sort of almost blows your mind that it, that it occurred, even though, you know, at the time I was thinking, are you feeling okay? <laughs> and, uh, and I think for Stephen as well, it's very strong work ethic. And uh, um, yeah, that was also something to, to pick up on. If I go through Adrian, who was a guy that we, we did a lot of stuff together and we were, you know, we were one of the consistents through National Hire. We leveraged each other well. We were a good foil for one another and uh, a lot of trust and uh, a lot of respect and you know, learned a lot from Adrian as well over, over the time. Getting into the Coates business, um, Lee Ainsworth, I, I found very, um, he was a good guy to learn from. I mean, Lee was so, you know, it was hard to phase him. And as you said before, he was a great buffer between the board and the business at times when maybe it needed to be and he, he absorbed a lot of pressure in that regard. But um, you know, he, he taught me about resilience, and you know, if you if you got the top job, you got to be able to handle it, and, uh, and you got to stay calm. <laughs> no one wants to see a, a CEO you know panicking or anything. So Lee was strong in that regard. Obviously, as I said with the Joyces, I mean, the the pace they ran they run businesses at it was just phenomenal. You know, the lack of fear, pace, you know, the desire for mistakes um, because that's how you learn, and then that kind of really open learning mindset they brought to to everything was also terrific. You know, if I look beyond that, I'd say everyone I've ever worked with in a team, you know, whether for me or, or alongside, I mean, I've definitely learned from all of them. You mm. know, and it's like you, you don't go through a day where you go and visit a branch, someone's teaching you something every time you walk in, or a customer to that, or, or, or a supplier. So, I mean, a lot of people, but those would be the standout guys yeah. um, that have taught me. And so you mentioned mistakes. Is that something that you embraced at an early, early age? No, I can't say. I mean, you know, I'm probably... Um, it's not something I got early. I mean, you do make mistakes. I, I probably don't get hung up and dwell on the past too much, so, so, so maybe a little better than some with them. I'm certainly not a perfectionist or a workaholic, so I don't suffer from that sort of stuff. Um, but I guess what, what, what interested me with the Joyce's was they had that mentality was like you almost, if you're not making mistakes, you're not having a crack. Uh, and I did like that approach. That was pretty, pretty fresh thinking. I mean, sometimes in businesses you become a little bit conservative and mm. everything's overanalyzed and you don't do much because of it. Mm. Um, yeah, they were happy to, to go at it pretty hard and fast. Yeah, it amazes me when I see these businesses that have been around for 30 years and there's still one location and it's nothing wrong with that. 
that's perfectly fine as well. But you can see that they don't want to step outside their boundaries. They don't want to open up a second location or, or acquire someone. And yeah, you can't grow if you don't take those mistakes on. Yeah. And I mean, the same token, those guys, I mean, we're all different. They, they, they build, they're running very fine businesses with extremely loyal customers and staff, you know, each to their own. But yeah, it's a, it's a big call sitting in one place for 30 years. Oh, definitely. All right. Well, talking about the past, if you could give some advice to young Greg coming over with the surfboard, maybe, or maybe doing his first day out at, at National High, what would you say? Yeah, I think, you know, we've sort of discussed already, I think, just being more proactive about about my career and, and about myself, you know, understanding a bit more about my weaknesses and, um, and, and wanting to do something about it. And then also just understanding your strengths and making sure you're leveraging them, them well. Maybe playing the game a bit more, being prepared to play the game a bit more. Um, probably, you know, ultimately ruffled more feathers than I needed to along the way, and that's, that's not useful, you know. You might walk away feeling, like, you know, good about it for three seconds and then it doesn't really get you where you need to. Um, yeah, I think those would be the key things and then have a goal, as, as we said before, you know. Have a, know where you want to go. Um, if you're not aiming at something like that, well then, you know, you're not in control of it or you're not driving it. Yeah. So you said you used to ruffle a lot of feathers. Is that something that used to be overly direct when you were younger? I think, I think, I mean, I think I was direct um, and it's all about the receiver, I guess. So, you know, um, times, no doubt, overly, you know, perceived as overly direct for sure. Mm. Well, there was a nickname that was out there for you back in the day. Maybe you can add this into the mix. So I heard that your nickname when you were younger was the Pope. So where did that come from? You know, and you did give me, you know, some warning on this one and I, I, I can't tell you. So, you know, when I think about it, and I wasn't there when it was first called out, it wasn't like an incident that occurred and someone went with the Pope. <laughs> I just kind of heard about it and then it stuck. Um, if I look at it in a positive light, I'd think, well, you know, when I, when I sort of get something that I truly believe in, I will promote it pretty hard. You know, there's like, like there's almost a religious kind of zeal trying to convert others into it and a, and a relentlessness about it. So if I'm going to be kind to myself, I'd say, you know, that's probably driven off that, that energy and that belief. Um, yeah, otherwise, who knows? I mean, everyone's got their own view on the Pope. I mean, he's a pretty sleepy old guy, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it could be the opposite. Yeah, it could be exactly. <laughs> yeah. I do remember it came up in a in a interview at some point or something, and uh, you know, the people I could see the guys in the room getting entirely the wrong, uh, well, what I thought might be the wrong impression of what it might mean. Um, so yeah, who knows? That's a pretty weird interview question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to ask you well, why is your nickname the Pope? Yeah. Oh, that's a strange one. All right, well, finally, so how do you define success? Well, I think, I mean, if you, if you start at a basic level, you know, I mean, you, you, you want to be achieving your goals and, and in a business like this, the targets. Um, you know, these days, like, I get a lot of satisfaction from, from seeing people grow and having a culture where that's kind of been stimulated and people are being maybe even a better version of themselves than they thought they could be. That's, that's pretty cool. And then belonging to a team, I think, you know, having a genuine team where everyone's got each other's backs, I think, also feels good, got that connection. So those are the things that like, are, make me sort of get out of bed and, and when those things are in place, I feel like I'm winning. And then, I mean, ultimately, we're all just looking, you know, for, you want to be healthy and happy, I guess, at the end of the day. So not take work too seriously and not overplay work as well. Having good balance yeah. is critical. Oh, that's awesome. Very good. Well... Yeah, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Uh, thanks very much. 